Well, good morning, Sailorville. If you brought a copy of Scripture uh, with you this morning, you can pull an audible with me and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And by that I mean uh, we have been studying uh, about the return of Christ and living in the light of his return in 2 Thessalonians. And if I'd have stayed on course today, I would have preached on the Antichrist. And for some reason, Valentine's Day, that just didn't go real well. So uh, we'll be back into that next week, all right? So 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and uh, follow with me as I read the first seven and a half verses, okay? If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, deliver my body up to martyrdom, to be burned, but have not love, I'm nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy. It's not jealous or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not selfish. It's not angry. ESV says irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never collapses. That's what the word means for ends. It never ends. It never collapses. It doesn't fail. The other day, uh, uh, our missionary Lucas Bear did the baptizing. His wife is over here singing. Uh, they, they take off in a couple of days for Brazil. They actually delayed uh, this so that Lucas could get a chance to baptize Sarah, which was really cool. And uh, so my wife and I were out to uh, coffee with them here the other day, and we walked into this, uh, this coffee shop in the East Village, and this woman looked at my wife and I, and she goes, it is so good to see you again. And we said, oh, how wonderful to see you. And we hugged her, and I looked up at Lucas, and I go, I mean, I knew her. I mean, I knew her. I should have known her. And my wife recognized her, and she should have, neither one of us could say who, what her name was. So we're just kind of fumbling around, and I'm assuming, I couldn't, she seemed so familiar. So and she led us to our table, and so I said, so like, so uh, she Lucas got her name. Her name is Journey. Well, they, yeah, yeah, Journey, Journey. I remember Journey. Uh, she must be in our young adults. Uh, so I said, Journey, how, I haven't seen you in church lately. She goes, well, I don't go to church. Now I'm digging my hole even deeper. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, all right. Uh, and so, and, so then she walked away. I, I finally called her back. I said, Journey, I am I'm so sorry. I can't remember. How, how do we know you? And he, she immediately mentioned the restaurant that my wife and I used to frequent before COVID hit. And immediately we knew who she was, and we just, boom, context, it was all there. Has that ever happened to you before? Someone you see out of context, and you just, you just don't see them right. Well, that's the way the love that's mentioned here in this chapter that we're so familiar with, and familiarity often breeds contempt, 
That's the way this love is. It, we, more often than not, we run into this love out of its context, uh, out of its rightful place, the gem, the holding, the setting right here. This is its rightful place. And speaking of context, uh, the Apostle Paul is really in the midst of, uh, of going back and forth with this very carnal, fleshly, self-centered church, and he, they've been confused. They've been fighting with one another, they're comparing themselves to one another, debating over the gifts, who's got the greater gifts. And Paul is basically saying, I'm going to show you something that trumps every other gift. It's God's more excellent way, the way of agape love. How many of you have heard the word agape? Just raise your hand, okay? That's most of you, okay? Very, very familiar word in the church, out of the church. It's this, so my wife and I had the... 1 Corinthians 13 on our wedding candle when we got married, my first wife and I. We didn't even know what it meant. It's ironic because the word agape was virtually unknown in the first century. Nobody used this word. You can look at, the, you can look at literature from the first century. You'll, you'll almost never come across this word. You'll come across other words for love, but not agape or agapao. It's just not there. In fact, if you use this word in a, in a first century context, the person you were talking to would probably go, huh? Because it was so airy, it was so out there, it was so otherworldly, it was so this is not how I live kind of love. There were other words, three of them particularly, that were uh, very familiar in that setting, and, and one of them was, and you're, you're familiar with the English word equivalent, it's the word eros, we get our word erotic from this word. It is the erotic is the self-love. Eros is self-love. It's the pleasure uh, love. It's, it's impulsive love. It's sensual love. It's sexual love. It's narcissistic love. It's not anything close to this kind of love. Aristotle called it the love that starts with the eye. This is the kind of love that brought Ravi Zacharias down. But I came across a very profound and eloquently worded poem. I want to share it with you. I'm sure you'll want to get a copy of this. John's girl is rich and haughty. My girl is poor as clay. John's girl is young and pretty. Mine looks like a bale of hay. John's girl is smart and clever. My girl is dumb but good. Would I trade my girl for John's girl? (laughs) You bet your life I would. That's eros love right there. That's not the kind of love we're aiming for, all right? Now, another word that was used and very uh, frequent, uh, frequently used in the first century was the word storge. It's not in the New Testament either, but that's basically family love, the way you love your kid, okay? In fact, it's this type of love God himself alludes to, to the Israelites when he says in Isaiah 49, verse 15, he says, Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Unthinkable, right? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you, God. It's a great verse, but this is really talking about storge love, okay? Now, the other word that was, they were very much used to and very much in vogue and in the New Testament is the word phileo love. We, you've heard of the word, the city of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. That's what this is. It's a, so if, um, if uh, eros love is self-love and storge love is natural love, 
then phileo love was reciprocal love. This is a really good kind of love. This is the kind of love all of us have to have. If you find yourself without friends, it's because you don't understand phileo love. Phileo love is the love that says, I love you because you love me. You love me because I love you. It's a reciprocal kind of a love. If I'm the only one given in this relationship, Houston, we have a problem, right? So it's a phileo kind of a love. It's a, it's a love that every relationship, every marriage has to have phileo love. It's the love that keeps the, 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 the wheels greased, so to speak, in a relationship. And really the contrast between uh, agape or agapao love and, and phileo love, even though both are good, uh, is found in John 21. You don't need to go there, but you're familiar with this story. Jesus has died. He's rose again. And he appears to the disciples along the shores of Galilee. You remember, they're out fishing, and he's unrecognizable on the shore. He throws, tells them to throw the net over. They catch this enormous uh, load of fish, and Peter recognizes him. It's the Lord, dives into the water, swims to shore. Remember that? And then Jesus dialogues with this man who has just denied him three times. Remember that? And he says to Peter, says, Peter, um, do you love me? And the word Jesus used was the word agape, which we'll get to in a moment, the highest form of love. Peter responds and says, Lord, you know that I phileo you. He, just, he knows what he's done. He can't bring himself to use the same word. Our English Bibles don't bring it out. So Jesus says, feed my sheep. Then he, Jesus circles back to him and says, Peter, do you love me? Again, using the word agape. And again, Peter says, Lord, you know I love you, using the word phileo. I have this affection for you. You are my brother. You are my savior. I love you. Uh, we're friends. He just couldn't go there. Finally, Jesus says to Peter, as he, as he gets down on his level, he says, Peter, do you phileo me? And that's when, that's when Peter started crying, because Jesus has now come down to his level. Do you, got that? You even have, do you even have that kind of love for me? And he broke. So there you have the contrast between those two kinds of love. This phileo love is a great love and needed in every single relationship. But the greatest is the word Agape. This is the love that chooses. This is the love that gives. This is the love that carries on. This is the love that endures through thick and thin without reciprocation. It does not require the one being loved to love back. This is the love that literally keeps marriages together when it looks like it's just coming apart at the seams. This is the love that sacrifices for God so agapao. He loved the world, gave his only son. It's the unconditional love. Unconditional. Doesn't need a condition. Phileo does. A few weeks ago, we cast a vision, a developing vision that the Lord laid on my heart, shared it with the other elders, we shared it with the deacons, we cast it to the church to begin earnestly determining how we can reach the poor in our community. We're still working on that vision to be able to cast it because the only thing worse than no vision is a blurry vision, right? And 
the results, this, this was the result of my time with God as I began to contemplate before God. You know, God, I haven't really got it. We've, we, we've, we've, we've had these type of benevolent ministries. We've reached out to the poor in other ways. We've been creative. We've given ourselves hundreds of people. And Lord, I can't think of a person that's been saved and baptized and joined to our church as a result of these ministries and a lot of money, a lot of effort, a lot of time, a lot of gift giving. I mean, I just can't. And it was almost like God spoke directly to my heart and said, Pat, why do you need a condition to love the poor? What if I asked you to just love the poor because I want you to love the poor? That is agape love, and that's what slayed me in that moment. It's defined in the New Testament, you know, here in his love, not that we love God, but that he what? He loved us. He gave his son as a propitiation for our sin, 1 John 4.10. And Paul said in Romans chapter, Paul said in Romans chapter 5, here, you know, here's love. God demonstrated his agape to us. Not, you know, in that while we were still sinners, what? Christ died for us. So what I want to do is spend the balance of our time. We're not going to, we're going to look at the whole flower. We're not going to, you know, we'll look at the petals, but we're not going to bear down like a series of messages might here, okay? So God's love calls us to. That's the, that's the header here, okay? It calls us to. And this is, for me, this is more important than anything, this first one, as I look at these first couple of verses. It calls us to examine our motivations. It calls us to examine our motivations. The Apostle Paul hits the Corinthians right where they're proudest, in their mouths. If I speak with the tongue of men and of angels even, and I don't have love, you know, well, I'm just making noise, he says, right? Even if I could speak the language of heaven itself, I'm just making noise. And this, look, look at this individual in the next verse. If I have prophetic powers, understand all mysteries and knowledge, I could even remove mountains. It, this, is, this is the combination of a brilliant theologian and a dazzling magician, magician worker, miracle worker even. But look what he says. If I, if, if I can do all those things and I don't have love, end of verse 2, I am what? Say it. In fact, the Greek says nothing at all. And the last part of this says, and if I give everything I have and I give my body over to martyrdom, but if I don't have love, I'm nothing. How, how is this possible, by the way? I gain nothing. I mean, as I, this is so counterintuitive. How could anybody be willing to go give everything they have and even die and not have love? It seems impossible. It's that such acts could even occur without love. But even martyrdom is meaningless apart from love. Terrorists do not earn brownie points with God. And so here, listen to this. So while love always involves sacrifice, sacrifice does not always involve love. And that is where you need to do some thinking. This entire section cries out to you and I to examine our motives for what we do. Some of you are gifted. You just naturally are given to help people. You have mercy, you, and you just seem so wonderful. But maybe it's just because you just like doing it. You're not doing it for the glory of God. You're doing it for the glory of self. That's not good motivation. That's not love. So that's what he's, he's, he's harking us to 
examine our motives. Just the other day, I had an experience like this just the other day. I'm going to lunch, going to meet a couple of friends for lunch. And I'm on my way there. I'm, I'm pretty much on schedule. Don't have a lot of extra time, okay? That's important. It's two below zero. I'm driving on one of the busy streets here between Des Moines and Ankeny, and there's cars just all over the place. I'm coming right up on an old sedan, old car. Its lights are flashing, really going slow, just creeping down the... And I just sort of went to the side, and I, as I was driving by him, I slowed down, and I looked over, and it was an old man all covered up, shivering at the wheel as I drove by him. And then this young guy went whipping right between all of us like that. And I went, you idiot. But maybe I was the idiot because I was still driving. I mean, I, I had an important ministry appointment to be at. So I made my way about a mile down the road and into the area where I was going to meet these individuals for lunch. I just, my, my conscience was just killing me. I drove into the parking lot, texted my friends, hey, I'll be with you in a minute. I'm just going to go back. Surely somebody's out. I mean, cars are everywhere. This guy's got to get help by now. I drove back, drove back, and there, there he was, still there, totally stranded now, cold, confused. I pulled my car up behind him and put my flashers on, got out talked to him and asked him if he wanted to get warmed up. He did. Got into my car, started warming up. We made some phone calls, got the help he needed, and I, made, got, him, I got him where he needed to be. But I tell you that because as, I, as he left, I gave him a card and shared a little truth with him and wished God's blessing on him. And I drove out of the parking lot where I left him, I mean, to a nice place, safe place. And in my mind, I thought, why did I ever hesitate to begin with? That was not love. And God calls you and I to examine our motivations all the time. Jonathan Edwards said this. He said, I've made it my aim of my life to never write a sermon and never write a book unless I'm convinced I am motivated by love for those to whom I preach or write. Amen. So, examine our motivations. Secondly, obey the ways of love. Obey those characteristics. So, they're, they're all listed. There's 15 of them, okay? And you'll thank me for not bearing down on every one of them, okay? Paul Simon from Simon and Garfunkel. Remember him? He wrote 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover. Remember that? Did you forget how it went? Just slip out the bag, Jack. Make a new plan, Stan. You don't need to be coy, Roy. Just get yourself free. Hop on the bus. <laughs> You'll never get this out of your head. You don't need to discuss much. Just drop off the key, Lee, and get yourself free. But the Apostle Paul made a more popular 15 ways to love your lovers and those you don't love. And, and most of them are negative. There's 15. Eight are negative. Seven are positive. Why would you have more negative than positive? I think that this speaks to our human weakness. This speaks to my human weakness. That I have to be told what love isn't. 
more than I have to be told what love is. In heaven, when you sit at the feet of Jesus, those of you who are going there, not assuming that all of you are, you're not going to hear Jesus tell you what love isn't. We will never have any proclivity to be anything but loving in heaven, right? But not now. So we need this. So love is not proud. You see that there. He uses the word boast. It's actually, it's the only time this word is ever used. It means vainglorious. Pride got Satan kicked out of heaven. It'll keep you from getting into heaven. And if you wonder, again, what I said, pride is the thing that where you may be given to do things, use your giftedness, but not for God's glory, but for vain or empty glory, for self-glory. And if that's in there, and by the way, we're all struck, don't we all struggle with our motivation? Please say yes. And God knows that. But Jeremiah the prophet, uh, he sensed something in Barak, his Emmanuelensis, his, his, uh, the guy who wrote for him. And he said this in Jeremiah 45. He said, are you seeking great things for yourself? Hey, Barak, don't do that. That's pride. And you need to examine yourself as I do regularly as to why we do whatever we do, right? That's not love if it's proud. It's not rude. That's an interesting word. That's a very, very strong Greek word. It's, it's very strong. It's not talking about passing gas here, okay? Not that that's not rude. This is talking about something that's shameful. This is talking about something that's, this even has sexual connotations to it, this word rude. Love is not rude. It's not inappropriate. It's not angry. You see, it, the, the ESV uses the word irritable. But if you have a King James that says it's not, anybody here using the King James? Don't raise your hand. Okay, a couple, oh, well, caught you. Get the camera on those guys. The Browns use the King James Version. Hey, it's a great translation. If you can quote the King's language. But hey, if you've got the King James Version, you know what it says. It says, love is not easily provoked. See that? It's really interesting. This is funny because the word easily is not in the Greek. It's not even implied. It just, it's not provoked. It's not, it doesn't get angry. It doesn't get irritable. So why would the King James say it's not easily provoked. Well, here's the theory. The translators, remember King James, King James was the one who got the honor of having his name put down. He's the one who authorized these 70 translators. And the theory is that King James was a fly-off-the-handle, angry man, and the translators, out of fear and in order to assuage the king, just stuck the word easily in there because you won't find it in any of the modern translations. Just a little trivia for you. But here's a more important question. Are you an angry person? Because nothing will pull the rug out from your testimony quicker than anger. Anger and irritability, being the curmudgeon, walk around complaining, that is not love. Certainly isn't Christian. It's not jealous. See that word envy there? That's the word that means jealous. This is a cool word. It's an onomatopoetic word. Now, an onomatopoetic expression is like, pow, swish, boom. Remember the old Batmans? They would do that. Put that that's an onomatopoetic, okay? So, so this is an onomatopoetic expression, this word envy. It's it literally in your mind. So in your mind, in your mind right now, uh, 
uh, hear water boiling. Just hear it boiling. That's what this means. Just think of that in your mind. This word means something that boils. And it's referring to jealousy. Interestingly, the word is kind of neutral. depends on the context. I mean, it, it means zeal. God is zealous. God is jealous. But wholly so. In Exodus 34, it speaks of his jealousy. God, God's jealousy is a lover's jealousy, desiring what is rightfully his. That's why James says, the Spirit of God yearns zealously for you. Have you ever read that? So this kind of love here, our non-love jealousy, is referring to an evil kind of jealousy that really hates what somebody else has. It sort of has the implication of covetousness to it. Love, listen to this, love appreciates God's giftedness in others. Envy resents it. Envy looks and says, I want to be like him. I want to be like her. I want what she has. And it forgets the fact that what, what do you have that you've not received, Paul wrote, right? And if you receive, why do you act as if you didn't? We don't boast about our gifts. We shouldn't envy about the gifts of others because love appreciates God's giftedness in other people's lives. Selfish, that's self-explanatory. Love isn't selfish. Love, then it says love doesn't, uh, doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing. The, the, the Greek literally says love does not keep a record of wrongs. Since our wrongs will be forever expunged, hallelujah, right? Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. But here's, this is describing the spiritual accountants that we have out there, the record keepers, the scorekeepers. I once visited a home. In my final attempt to reconcile with an individual I'd been working very hard and diligently and prayerfully to reconcile with. And we just had one impasse after another. Just could not, we just couldn't get beyond it. So I went to the home with this idea. I went to the home and I sat in the home and I looked across to him and I said, Look, I know we don't agree, but I read these words love keeps no record of being wrong. And my hope was he would, yeah, you know, he just stared at me. Unbeknownst to me, he had several pages of indictments of recorded things I'd done wrong over 10 years. A couple of them stuck, actually. But anyway, point is, he was keeping records. This doesn't smack of agape love. This is where if you're a Christian, you understand, if you come to an impasse, you forgive, you let go, you acknowledge your own sin by keeping the records and move on. What is love? Well, just quickly, it's patient. That means to be long-tempered. You don't fly off the handle. It's kind. I didn't make this up, but I love, what is kindness? What is kindness anyway? Someone says that kindness is, is, uh, is the language that the deaf can hear and the blind can see. It's truthful. It even rejoices in the truth. It bears all things. So there, uh, agape love has a toughness to it that can take a punch, figuratively speaking, and keep going. 
It, it believes all things. You see that there in verse 7? It believes all things. There is, a, there is a naivete about love. It's not up to you. God doesn't allow you and me to judge people. I can't see what's going on in your heart when you say you're sorry. I have to believe that you mean it. When I believe somebody who's lying to me, that's not on me. That's on them. Because love believes all things. It hopes, and I'll come back to that. And endures all things. That Greek word means to remain under. First century writer used this word to refer to a city that was under siege but would not give up. That's the kind of love. That kind of love says, I'm not quitting. I'm hanging in there. So God's love calls us to examine our motivations for why we do anything. To obey its ways, its characteristics, and finally, to trust the giver of love. Because love never ends. You see that at the beginning of verse 8? Love never ends. The word end means to collapse. It means to fail. It doesn't fail. Your true lover of your soul will never fail you. He'll never give up on you. He'll never allow you to collapse Though some of you feel like you can't take another step, either for lack of love, or loss of love, or longing for love. God knows it all, and he is the lover of your soul. And you will never get a better lover than God. So wrap yourselves in the unfailing love of the greatest giver of them all, the Lord Jesus Christ. After all, God is what? That's the very definition of God. He's love. My absolute favorite hymn, we don't sing it often. We'll sing it today. It was written in the 1800s by George Matheson. George Matheson was a theologian. He was a pastor. He was a writer. He was a hymn writer. And uh, he was also going blind. He was engaged to be married, but he thought it would only be ethical to tell his fiancée that he was going blind at age 20. And the result was she broke off the engagement, broke his heart. His sister came along and said, I'll take care of you, brother. And for the next 20 years, his dear, godly sister took care of George Matheson. He preached blind. He preached blind. Imagine that. And she took care of everything. But 20 years later, she fell in love and got married. And with the prospect of not having the only person in the world that had cared for him and really taken him everywhere he went, being gone, having lost love years earlier, he went into his room and he tells us autobiographically, that it took him five minutes to write these words as he sat before God and wrote these words. And every time I sing these words, every time I get emotional. Oh, love that will not let me go. I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe. 
that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. Matheson and thousands of others since and before have come to realize that no matter what they experience in this life, love or not love, the lover of their soul never changes, never gives up, never collapses on them, and he won't collapse on you. But you have to rest your soul in him. And some of you have just not done that. Jesus said to you, come to me, all of you who labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest for your souls. Why? Because I'm the lover of your souls. That's why. And if you've never really repented of your sin, and some of you just haven't, come to God who doesn't have to prove his love anymore. He's proven it in his son who died for you and rose again for you. Trust him as your Lord and Savior. And if you have, rest in him. Rest your weary soul in him. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for your word, for love. Thank you for all the loves, the different kinds of loves, for romantic love that this day happens to celebrate, but it's so shallow in and of itself. For family love, for the friendly, reciprocal love we have with those that we are our spouses and our friends and those that we are very endearing to us. And thank you, God, for agape love, for leading the way by sending your son unconditionally to die for us. And there, God, we find rest for our souls in your son, Jesus. I pray for those who have not found rest in Jesus. If that's you, dear friend, whether you're here in this room or watching online, would you flee to the lover of your soul, find rest in him, find salvation? We pray all these things. In the name of Jesus Christ, the great lover of our souls, amen. Let's stand.